So if you could, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24 this evening. So we have a, a number of different verses to get through, but we'll, we'll navigate our way through it. And what I want us to talk on and, and think about tonight is the idea that's been going on through 1 John quite a bit, and that is this idea of the assurance of our faith. How do we know that we are Christians? That's the question for us tonight. How do I know that I'm a Christian? And John is really digging into the, the center part of his letter to these Christians because what I suspect he realizes for these people, for these Christians at that point, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's for us as well as that they had doubts. And doubt's a, a funny thing. It takes many forms. It comes, comes from different sources. Sometimes we can doubt because we are forgetful people. Did I turn the stove off when I left the house? Did I pay that bill that I was supposed to pay or not? We're forgetful people. Elizabeth's smirking at me because this is the classic conversation we have when we leave the house. I hope I turn the straightener off. I wonder if I turn the straightener off. That, that happens for many of us because we're forgetful people. So we doubt about what actually happened. Sometimes we doubt because we don't have the experience with something. We're unsure of what to do because we just aren't familiar with things. If I took us back to the kitchen and I handed you three eggs and I said, make me the perfect French omelet, how many of you could do it? First try. Addie says yes. There's a couple people who are like, eh, maybe. I tried it. If you've ever tried to make a French omelet, it's very hard. Um, it takes a lot of work. I have done it almost perfectly one time and it took me like 12 eggs or more. Um, to figure it out. So it's a hard thing to do, and mostly because none of us are experienced chefs. We could pull up a video of Gordon Ramsay making eggs and think, okay, maybe I can replicate that. Or the better option, if you do want to try this, Jacques Pepin. Best tutorial on making omelets out there on YouTube. But we, we would be doubtful that we could accomplish this because we're unfamiliar with it. Or if we stepped out of the kitchen and I said, we're going to go to a gun range and you've never shot a gun before and I'm going to put a gun in your hand, stand you 25 feet away from a target and say, hit the bullseye. You're going to doubt that you could do it. Some of you might be like, is this thing just going to like explode in my hand? Because you've never experienced it before. So we have these doubts that creep up in our lives and doubt comes from fear, doubt comes from a lack of confidence. Doubt just is present in our lives. And so for John, when he's talking in the letter of 1 John, and specifically in the text we're going to look at, he's dealing with a group of people that he suspects doubt. And not doubt their ability to cook eggs or doubt their ability to shoot a gun or doubt whether or not they turn an appliance off, but they're doubting whether or not they actually have faith. And if we think about the circumstances and the context of what they went through, we kind of understand why they might doubt. John's dealt with a number of different topics already in this letter, and one of them is that there are people who were in the church, who were part of the community of faith, who have now left. 
They're no longer part of it. Namely because they denied the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus and they said, we don't believe this truth, this theological truth about him. And so they've left the church. So if you're remaining in that church and you've just seen your friends leave and say, this, this thing you believe is a lie, imagine how that might shake your faith. You begin to question, well, are these people right? Am I, what, am I the one that's wrong? And so you, you doubt whether or not this is actually real. And so you wrestle back and forth with, is my faith legitimate? And we understand that same doubt sometimes through relationships we have where people leave the faith and we begin to question things. But we also have doubts because of our own experiences in our own lives. We see sin in our lives and we begin to question, am I truly, would a Christian live like this? Would someone who believes the gospel actually do these things? And so we begin to look at our own selves and see our sinfulness and say, man, I don't, I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't know that I'm actually a Christian. So what I want us to do is to walk through this text with that question in mind. How do I know that I am a Christian? And the goal of this is not to have us walk away discouraged, not to have us walk away upset, but it's for us to walk away, if we are genuine, true believers, to walk away encouraged by the word of God that, yes, I can know and I do know that I'm a Christian because it is possible. We're not a traditional confessional church that follows creeds um, or follows the confessions that have been passed down through history. Some of my Presbyterian friends would be like, you probably should be. Um, But we do follow, we do acknowledge the the confessions and the creeds that have been passed down. And one of them in particular, a very popular one, is the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it says in there that assurance of faith is something that is infallible. The idea is that it's it's possible. It is we are capable of knowing for sure that we are Christians. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text with that in mind and look at three genuine answers to that question, three genuine evidences of faith so that we can walk away saying, I know that I am a Christian. But I want to make one distinction before we get into that because I think it's an important one. And we've done this several times through the book. There is a difference between the question, how do I know I'm a Christian, and how do I become a Christian? Those are different things. How do I become a Christian? You become a Christian when you see your sin, confess that sin to God, repent of it, and place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of that sin. You recognize Jesus as the Son of God who's paid the penalty for that sin. That's how you become a Christian. How do you know you are a Christian? That's what we'll see in 1 John chapter 3. Let's start in verses 11 through 15, and we read, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that you have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not, abide, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the first evidence, the first answer to this question, how do I know I'm a Christian? I think we could summarize these verses and say this. You know you're a Christian if you have a genuine love for other believers in your life. The message from John is clear. We should love one another. And for John, this is nothing new. We read John 13 earlier because John sat in a room where Jesus had just finished washing the disciples' feet and And Jesus says these words, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when he says, this is no new commandment, he's saying, this is what you learned from the beginning. The very foundation of the gospel that you heard, that you believed was one rooted in, grounded in love. John uses an Old Testament example He goes to the story of Cain and Abel, and if you're unfamiliar with that, I'll I'll summarize it briefly. Cain and Abel are brothers, Genesis chapter 4. They both come to God offering a sacrifice to God. The Bible remarks that Abel does this, offering this sacrifice with, with faith. He does this thing. Cain, however, lacks faith, and so his offering is not accepted by God, where Abel's is accepted by God. And Cain, out of anger, towards God for his lack of acceptance, murders his brother, kills Abel. So John gives us this example and he says, this is how not to live. This is the opposite of love. This anger, this hatred that sat in Cain's heart and brought him to the point of murdering his brother, that's the opposite of love. And that's not how you should live. He then asks this interesting question. He says, why did he murder him? Now, if we looked at the story and we thought about it, we could say, well, maybe it was jealousy. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was resentment towards Abel, anger towards God. It could be a variety of things. But John just summarizes it with one word, and he says it's evil. Why did Cain kill his brother? Because he was evil. And I think that points to Cain's character, Who he was was evil. His evil character comes out, and it comes out in evil actions in the murdering of his brother. And so I think what John's doing, he's continuing this this thought that he's kept throughout the, the third chapter so far of making this distinction between children of God and children of the devil. Those who walk in the light, those who walk in darkness. Those who are evil, like Cain. Those who are righteous, like Abel. And those who are evil, like Cain, practice evil. That's why he can say the next verse, in verse 13, do not be surprised that the world hates you. Because the world and its system and its structure is evil. So hatred comes naturally for the world. Just as hatred came naturally for Cain, and so his hatred drove him to kill, hatred comes naturally for people who are not connected to Christ. And so this natural, this natural inclination towards hatred drives them to hate Christians, drives them to hate us. So John just puts kind of this parenthesis and he says, don't be surprised by this. Don't be caught off guard when the world hates you because whenever sin was introduced into the world, 
People hated God's people. Cain killed his own brother because he was evil. So the world is evil and it will hate you. And if we think John is just simply talking about physically murdering someone and say, well, yeah, if that's the standard, if I just don't murder someone and that means you love them, I'm good. I haven't murdered anybody. I don't intend or plan on murdering anyone. But John takes it a step further and he says, this isn't just about the physical act of murder. In verse 15, he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. If you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, this jives with what Jesus says about the same topic. When he says that if you hold unrepentant hatred and anger in your hearts, it's like you are committing murder against your brother. And it's an important distinction for John because he's going to get to how we do the actions of love later in the chapter. But here, I think what he's talking about is really this attitude, this heart of love that's expected of the Christian. Because as Christians, John's encouragement for us is to say, you should have this disposition, this character quality, this attitude, this heart, this inclination to love other people. And, and that's what he's getting at in this whole concept, in this whole discussion of Cain and Abel. He's saying, your heart, not just your actions, needs to be full of love. That's the expectation of a Christian. We'll get into why in just a moment. John affirms this in verse 14, and he he, he kind of says something interesting. He says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. This is a continual idea of loving. He says, you can have confidence, you can have assurance that faith is real and genuine for you if your heart attitude towards other Christians is one of love. If you are loving on other people from your heart. Again, it's a continual idea. It's not this idea of, well, I've loved in the past, but I don't love anymore, and so I'm still good. No, it's this continual loving that we are to have towards others in our heart. And so, when we think of this idea from John, and he says, you are to love others in your heart, we also have to think of the opposite, and he does as well. Whoever does not love abides in death. He's not mincing words about this. John is very black and white in this book. He's very black and white in this text. And I think it's important that he is because, again, he's dealing with people who are doubting their faith, and he's trying to tell them, "Don't, don't run off into this place that other people have run off to. You've had friends leave. You've had friends abandon their faith. Don't run off in that way. Because if you, if you head that way where your, your heart is hatred towards other people, you're, you're not loving towards other people, you're going to end up in a place where you have no faith. You can have no assurance of that faith. And so John is saying, if we cannot say from our hearts that we love other people, you can't have confidence in eternal life. I want to raise two objections 
You may even be thinking of them and then address them. The first one is this. You've just said that we need to look at our hearts to see if they're loving as a means of assuring ourselves of our faith. But the Bible says, Jeremiah 17, 9, if you're familiar with the text, your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So how can you say, if your heart is loving, look to your heart to see if there's love there as, the, as an assurance, as an evidence of our faith? Because our hearts are deceitful. We can't trust our hearts. How can I look to my heart for validation that I'm a Christian when I know that my heart will lie? My answer to that is this, and I'll answer that question with a question. If you are a true believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ, does Jeremiah 17.9 actually apply to you? Consider these other texts. Jeremiah 31, Ezra 36 talks about the fact that the law of God will be written on our hearts. It talks about the fact that God will take from us a heart of stone and insert a heart of flesh. He gives us a new heart. Colossians 3 says that we are being renewed into the image of God every day. So Christians, our hearts have changed. Jeremiah 17, 9, this idea that our hearts are just wicked and corrupt is not true for us. Yes, we struggle with sin. Are we perfect? Not in any way are we perfect. We have a sinful nature, so we don't love perfectly. But to walk away and think, well, I can never look at my heart to see if there's love there as an assurance of my faith, I think is wrong. Because we as Christians have a new heart being given to us by God, and so our hearts are no longer completely and totally wicked. We have been changed. We have been renewed by the gospel and are being renewed by the gospel. And of course, we have this sinful nature, and so when we look at our hearts and we, we say, well, I don't love perfectly, go back to 1 John chapter 3. Does John say, in order to have confidence in your faith, you must perfectly love people? He does not. I think we have to get comfortable with this idea that having a loving heart towards others does not mean having flawless love towards others. Amen. We're capable of loving in a true, a sincere, and a good way from our hearts that is not perfect. And you read the text of John and you realize John's okay with that in this context. He's not demanding perfect love from our hearts. And frankly, we're not capable of having perfect love in our hearts. We're not capable of being perfect, but there is someone who is capable of being perfect in our place, and that's Jesus Christ. John doesn't call us to perfect love. He calls us to love sincerely and true and in a good way. And he's encouraging you to say, your heart has changed. And if you look in your heart and you see love for other Christians around you, you can be assured that there is evidence of faith and that your faith is real. Second objection. 
If you were to say, I have been hurt by other Christians in my life, they've never repented of their wrong and it's hard for me to love them from my heart, does this mean that I'm not a Christian? And I think we have to answer this question and say, no, that does not mean you're not a Christian. John doesn't directly address this in his letter, but I think it's natural for us to question this and say, well, what if someone's hurt me? What if someone's wronged me? They've never repented of this. So how do I love them? I find it hard to love them. I find it hard to care for someone who's harmed me, who's wronged me. And again, I don't think we would look at this and say, if you're struggling to love someone who's harmed you, that that is evidence that you don't have faith. I want to qualify that no with a couple points. We'll go to some scripture and we'll talk about it. Romans 12, 18, it tells us that as far as it depends on us to live at peace with all people. So my first kind of qualification to that no is, if someone has hurt you, have you taken right biblical steps to try to reconcile that hurt? If you've taken the difficult steps that it is to confront someone who has harmed you, and don't get me wrong, it is difficult, it is hard. If you've taken those steps to do that, likely what has taken place is you have gotten counsel from people that you trust and that you love and that have given you good advice. You've prayerfully considered how to biblically confront this person who has wronged you. Your heart's been prepared to love and so that when reconciliation would happen and that's the goal, when someone does repent, you would be able to show love and you would be able to show your heart towards that person is one of love. But sadly, that doesn't always happen. Someone doesn't repent. And so while you're ready to love that person because God has given you grace to love that person, you recognize the gospel and what it's done for you, and so you, you want to extend that to someone else. You're prepared to do that. If someone's not willing to repent of their sin, they're not ready to receive any love from you. We aren't responsible to change that person. The Bible is clear. Romans 12, 18 is very clear. It, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. You can't change the attitudes and the behaviors of other people. You can't force someone to repent and so therefore have love extended to them. It's, it's okay to say, I, I can't properly love someone who doesn't want to be loved. If they don't desire love from me, I, I, I can't properly love them in that way. Second qualifying question to that no, and if you would say, you know what, I struggle to have love towards this person who has hurt me, who has wronged me. Doesn't the struggle reveal your faith? I'll put it in a different way, not a question. If you are wrestling to love someone that's hurt you and you're saying, you know what, I have a hard time loving a person that's harmed me, that's hurt me. That wrestle in and of itself, that struggle in and of itself shows that your faith is genuine. And what I mean by that is, if you did not have faith, you would care less about a person that hurt you. If you did not have faith, you wouldn't be actually trying to restore a relationship with someone that's hurt you. You wouldn't care to love a person that's hurt you if you didn't have faith. 
So the very wrestling that we do of how to love someone is evidence of the fact that we have faith from God. So I think that struggle where you're like, you know, I don't know if I'm a Christian, I really struggle to love this person. That wrestle alone, I think reveals to me and I think would reveal to John that, no, that's, that's true. That's true, genuine faith. Because if you didn't have it, you wouldn't struggle. You would just give up on someone. I want to keep moving, but I want to say one last thing. If you do hold on to anger and bitterness and hatred towards someone, if you say, I have, I have no desire to reconcile with a person who's hurt me, I have no desire to love someone who's hurt me, I will take my hatred and my bitterness and my grudge to the grave. I think we have to be really careful. Because I think if, if that's our heart attitude towards people where we say, I have no interest in this person, I'm writing them off and I'll take my hatred to the grave with me. I think John would say, probably hate your brother and you are a murderer and no murderer has a part of eternal life. I think we're treading on dangerous ground when that's our heart attitude to say, you know what, I just hate this person and there's nothing that they could ever do. They could, they could repent a million times over and I'll never forgive them. I'll never show them love. If that's our hard attitude, I think we have to look in the mirror and say, I don't know if there's faith there. Now, everyone's situation is different. Every situation is complicated. Every nuance where we've been hurt, every relationship is challenged, has its own set of challenges. And so if you're wrestling with loving someone that you really just don't care for, or if you're in a position like that, that latter person, you say, you know what, I just hate a person. I have no interest in loving them. My encouragement for you would, please talk with someone. Talk with me. Talk with some of the other elders. Talk to someone in your GCC. Someone that you trust. Someone that you trust and that you know you can be open and vulnerable with about what's going on in your life and they will respond with grace, respond with kindness, respond with love so that they can help you walk through this because as we see in those first few verses of this text, this is about death and life. This isn't about just now. This isn't about just this life. For John, the way our hearts are oriented towards other believers with love or hatred is the defining characteristic of whether or not we are going to pass from this life and enter into the glory of God or pass from this life and enter into hell. This is real, heavy, big stuff for John. This isn't just trivial things. And so if you're wrestling in that area, please, I would encourage you, talk with someone that you trust that can help you navigate through that struggle and point you back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first mark, the first evidence of how do I know I'm a Christian is to love other believers. The second one we see in verses 16 through 18 reads this, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
The second evidence or the second mark of how do I know I'm a Christian is that as we follow the example of Christ, your love is expressed through physical acts of serving others. Real love for John, God's love, is shown as well as spoken. It is a tangible thing as well as, and and not only a theoretical thing. We hear about love all the time. Love is written about, love is talked about. You turn on the television, you you turn on a movie, you listen to music. Love is all around. But do we know what it actually is? The Bible says if you want to see love, it says it in verse 16, by this we know love. If you want to see love, you look at the cross. If you want to know love, you look at the cross. If you want to show love to other people, you look at the cross. If you want to live love towards other people, you look at the cross because it's at the cross where Jesus, the Son of God, sacrificed his life on our behalf. He lived the life that we should live, but we didn't. He died the death that we should die, but now we don't have to. Because love at its core, and he says it in verse 16, love at its core is a self-sacrificial, self-substitution love. It's in our sinful nature that we want to self-preserve. But true, genuine love, it calls us to sacrifice, and Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He says there in verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. He says similar words in John 15, verse 14. He says, greater love has no one than this, but to lay down his life for his friends. We typically stop there, but the very next verse, John 15, 14 begins with, and you are my friends. Think about John writing these words in this letter. Think about him writing the gospel, remembering back to the day in that upper room where Jesus is looking at them and he says, no one, no one shows greater love than to lay down his life for his friends and I'm your friends and just hours later he's laying down his life for his friends. What an incredible experience for John and so we see through the eyes of John that not only did he die for John but he died for us. And so the same words that Jesus says, he says, and you are my friends to his disciples, he is pleased to say to us. If you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus says, you are my friend. And truthfully, we only know love because of what Christ has done for us. Because without God's love poured out on the world, we have no concept of love. We understand that love exemplified in Jesus Christ, that's what that's talking about, that he laid down his life for us is a love that expends itself in the interest of others. True, genuine love exemplified in Christ is one that gives of itself for the interest of others. What John's ultimately telling us, if we want to boil it down to one simple phrase, an idiom, talk is cheap. We can say we love all we want, but if we never show it, talk is cheap. James talks about this same idea in James chapter 2, and he says that what good is it if you see someone in need and just tell them, go in peace, be warmed and filled? What good is that? If you don't actually show tangible love towards other people, what good, what good is that love? It's meaningless. It's pointless. It does nothing. 
we would expect John, using this example of Jesus, he said, you laid down, he laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You would think he would bring about a scenario or an example for us to say, well, you should lay down your life for your friends in this way. This is how you would lay down your life for your friends. Elizabeth and I were hanging out outside last night, um, and she had music playing, as she typically does, and there was a song that came on. I don't remember who the, the singer is, nor do I really care all that much. I'm not big into music. But the lyrics went something like, I will jump on a grenade for you. I will step in front of a train for you. I'll do anything for you. And it's this guy, I guess, talking to someone he loves and saying, I will die for you. I don't know who the singer is, but maybe he was reading First John. I don't know. Bruno Mars. There you go. If you want to waste three and a half minutes of your life, go listen to the song by Bruno Mars. Um, no offense to any Bruno Mars fans. I just don't love music that much. But he, we would think that John would go there. John would write this long paragraph of how we would die for someone that we love. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, go jump in front of a train for someone and that's how you'll show him you love them. He says, when they come to you and they say, I need some food, are you going to give it to them? I'm cold, I need a coat. Are you going to give it to them? He doesn't go to this extraordinary event that most of us would never actually likely be involved in where we would have to physically give our lives to protect someone else. He goes to the very basic human level and he says, if someone comes to you and they have a need and you have the means to help them, will you do it? That's where John goes with this. He says, to live out love, this love that you say is in your heart, to live it out is to try to meet the very basic needs that people have in, in your life, the people that are around you. So when someone comes and they says, hey, I'm, I'm struggling, I don't have enough food for my family, do we just say, be warmed and filled, go in peace? It's getting cold, I don't, I don't have a coat, my heat was turned off because it was too expensive. How do we respond to that? Verse 17, he says, if you see, if you have the world's goods and see your brother in need, yet close your heart to him, how does God's love abide in you? That idea of closing your heart to him is that you are unaffected by it. You're emotionless. Someone comes to you with need, they're vulnerable enough to say, I have something that I need, and your response to them is just like, eh, have a good day. I'll see you next Sunday. That's the idea that John's getting at when he says, you, you have closed your heart. You are emotionless. You are unaffected. You have no sympathy. You have no pity for someone who's coming to you with need. Now, I want to encourage us. I want to encourage us because, you know, sometimes we, we preach and Sometimes we think that the idea of preaching is just to you know, convict us of sin. There's a part of that that's true. That we, we need to walk away feeling like we have a bunch of things to change about our lives, and that's, that can be true. Scripture changes us. We ought to be transformed by 
the Word of God. But part of coming to a text and part of preaching is to affirm when we see grace present in the lives of the church. And so church, I want to affirm you. Because when it comes to this idea of caring for and helping those who are in need, I think we do this. Do we do it perfectly? No. Do we do it well? Perhaps. That's subjective. That's on a scale. Do we do it? Yes. So I want, I want to encourage you. I want to affirm the grace of God in your lives that when, we have, that when people come along who have needs, we have countless examples of people in this church who have stopped them and said, I will care for that need. I will address that need in someone's life. Many meals have been made. Many hours have been spent distributing food through a food truck each weekend to homeless people downtown. People have used their skills and their abilities, their energies, their time to care for people. Hours are spent bringing people to worship that may not have a car or means of transportation to get here. Time spent praying with people who are hurting. Money spent, we just talked about it earlier, money spent to send to a church thousands of miles away on another continent where we've only met two people from that, from that church. And yet, we've been able to support and help Christians in need. So I say this not to puff us up and give us a, a sinful pride about how we interact with people. But I say this just to affirm the grace of God that when you see a brother and sister in need and you have the means to help, church, I haven't seen you close your hearts to them. I don't want to thank you for that. That is a beautiful display of the gospel. And when we think of it in the context of this passage, in the context of 1 John, it's a beautiful display of the faith that you have. So if you're wrestling with doubt and you say, I, I can point to examples in my life where the love that I have in my heart has been poured out and shown to other Christians, use that as something to give you confidence in the faith that you have. How do I know I'm a Christian? The first evidence is that we love from our hearts. The second is that love in our hearts is shown through the service of others. And the third is verses 19 to 24. It says, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abide in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he's given us. The third evidence is this, is that even when we doubt, God sees your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If we were to isolate these three things, these three evidences, and we were to say, you know, I'm just going to use one of them exclusively to give me confidence in my faith. So you know what? I just, I really have a lot of love for people in my heart, and we just exclude the other two, we would have no confidence in our faith. We shouldn't have confidence in our faith. If we're saying, I have a heart full of love, but I never show it, we shouldn't be confident in our faith. If the alternative is true, and we say, well, I show a lot of love to people, but in my heart, I actually hate everybody. 
I just do it because I'm supposed to. I just go through the motions of it, but I don't actually love. We shouldn't have confidence in our faith. But if we can genuinely look at our hearts and say, there's love there. I've been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a new heart and I show that to other people. Then I can have confidence that I, and then I can, I know that I'm a Christian. And you say, but what about the fact that sometimes our heart does deceive us? Sometimes our heart does tell us that we're not genuinely a Christian. When we fail to love, our heart tells us that we are terrible people that could never be saved. And what we see in verses 19 to 24 is that when our heart, or we could say our conscience condemns us, God's greater than all of that. The foundation of our faith, the foundation of the confidence we have that we are a Christian is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that God sees not us when he looks on us, but he sees Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. When it does happen that our heart condemns us and your conscience says, you know, how could you possibly be a Christian? And, and your heart pushes you to doubt your salvation. God is there. But he's never there to destroy us. He's never there to condemn us. The Bible says that he's there and he knows all. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So while our hearts are, are piling on this guilt and this shame, God in his omniscience is his, his all-knowingness. It says he sees all, he hears all, he knows all. He sees, he sees our hearts better than we see our own hearts, and yet he looks at all that and he says, I still accept you. You're still my child. And what it does in this passage tells us is that it gives us confidence. Verse 21 says we have confidence before God. It gives us confidence to come to God, even when our heart wants to condemn us, knowing that God's greater than those things. And so we can, in confidence, be honest with God and say, God, I do have a hard time loving people. I do have a hard time showing that love to other people. Sometimes I'm too focused on myself. Sometimes I'm too focused on my own preservation. I don't desire to self-sacrifice like you did for me. And I think it's in that time of honesty and prayer to God that we can recognize because of what Christ has done for us, we don't have to shrink away from God. We don't have to pull away from him and say, God, I'm just so terrible and so awful. I don't love like I should. I don't love like John tells me to love. And so I don't know if I'm a Christian. Instead, we move towards God and embrace God as he's embracing us. And, and we recognize the fact that God looks on us, people who are fallible, people who are sinful, and he says, I see greater than what your heart is condemning. I see Jesus Christ in your place. While your heart wants to tell you you're not a Christian, you are. You can have confidence in this faith as you live it out for my glory, for your good. And so when we do come to God and in honesty, in honesty, pray to God and not shrink away from him, but confidently, what does it say? We ask. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. So we ask for help. 
We say, God, I, I don't love like I should. We ask for help to love like we should. And God encourages us to love. He reminds us of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And he says, go show this love to others. He shows us his love. The very last verse of this, of this chapter says that he has given us a spirit that abides in us. And that spirit guides us, it convicts us, it leads us, it comforts us. The person of the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and, and God says, I look on Christ, not your sinfulness, so we can then have confidence. We can walk away from this text, not discouraged, not wondering, am I a Christian? But saying, I'm loving like I should. I have a heart that, though it's not perfect, it does love. It's been changed. And I have a, a Savior who loves me, who looks past all of my sinfulness, not, in, not sweeps it under the rug, but because it's been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he looks at Jesus in my place. So how do I know I'm a Christian? It's because Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins. The love he gave us has transformed our lives so that we can with confidence stand before God, not condemned in sin. Not taking, and, and that we're taking the love he has shown us and given that love to others. Are we perfect? No. But he hasn't called us to perfection. He hasn't called us to perfection because we can't be perfect. Instead, Jesus has been perfect for us. So friends, if you've experienced the love of God through Jesus Christ, that is our answer. How do you know that you're a Christian? It's because of the person and work of Jesus Christ and what's been done on your behalf and that you're living out that love that's been given to you and showing it to other people. If that's happening for you, walk out in confidence before God. Be encouraged by the fact that you are a child of God and that he, he is pleased and glad to call you his child. But friends, if that's not your experience, if you would say, I hate people, I want nothing to do with people. I have no love in my heart. I don't show love to other people. I don't know the reality of the gospel in my life. I would invite you to come and talk with me. Talk with someone again that you trust, that you know will walk you through what the gospel means and that you would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that you might know, that you might have confidence that the God who died for you, the God who saves you, is the God who will keep you for all of eternity. We remember the display of God's love for us each week when we take communion. It's a time for us to reflect on the sacrifice that Christ has made, and so we're going to do that now. He died so that we could live, and so we remember Jesus' death until he comes. That's what he calls us to traditional for us each week to take communion, so we're going to do that. We will sing a song together and then take communion as well. But before we do, let's just briefly pray. Gracious Father, we want to thank you for Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us. We ask for your blessing as we take communion. Help us to remember the love that you have poured out for us through Jesus Christ and his death. Thank you for your plan of salvation. Thank you for including us in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.